The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We find ourselves in the middle of the study of this very important chapter in a very important book in God's Word, which is entirely devoted to the subject of judgment. Um, I was speaking with someone this week, and uh, they said, yeah, bringing guests uh, in the book of Romans is always an adventure, isn't it? I said, well, for a few chapters, it's going to be. Uh, But this is very clearly an important issue because knowing of the judgment of God that awaits every person is a sweet grace that gives us preparation for that great day. Let's pick up as we look at Romans chapter 2. We're going to begin our study in verse 6, but let's get a running start from verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment, the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for them wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. One of the most disputed practices in the academic world is the standard of grading on a curve. You've all been a part of classes that were graded on a curve. If you're in the upper bell curve of that part, that's a good place to be. If you're in the lower bell part of grading on a curve, it's not so positive. In simple terms, the highest grade in the class when you're grading by a curve is taken and it's converted to 100%. So if you have a 92, you now become the 100. So they add eight points to your grade. So you're the new 100. A bell curve is then plotted to see the distribution of the grades. The lowest grades are compared to the me- and measured to the highest grades on the opposite side of that bell curve, that distribution. And in a class where one is being graded on a curve, the students at the top rarely complain. A 92 to become 100, I like that. But for those who are on the bottom end of the bell curve, it's not so good. They're penalized the most. The key issue in grading on a curve is that the standards for the grades, get this, become the individuals themselves, not an objective external standard. The best you can do and the best someone can do, that becomes the standard by which everyone else is measured. I think you'll find that most people who are uninformed by biblical truth intuitively perceive and think that God grades on a curve. 
Not only that, they think of themselves as either in the bulk of the bell or either at the upper end of the bell curve, and that somehow because they're nice people and have done nice things to nice people and petted dogs and not kicked cats, they may go to heaven. Actually, kicking cats would be a good thing to do. We won't close in prayer right now. The idea, though, is that God takes people on the top of the moral curve to heaven and sends those on the bottom end of the moral curve to hell. Now, as odd as we would think that is, for those of us who've studied the Bible together for years and decades and understand what the gospel is, as odd as that seems, that's the exact mindset of the Jew when we walk into Romans chapter 2. It was the basic thinking of the Jews at the time of Paul and certainly at the time of Jesus. He hammered this issue over and over. Finally saying to them in Matthew chapter 6, tell you what, you want to be graded on a bell curve? Okay, let's, let's look at the bell curve. You want to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. You have to have 100%. No one can do that. That's why he, by imputation, gives his perfect righteousness to those who believe. The Jews at this time had believed they were not only morally superior and better than the Gentiles and acted better, but the mere possession that they had of the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant, gave them a special status with God. They thought God looks with kind favor to us. He thinks we're better than them. I mean, think about it. They were children of the promise, children of Abraham, heirs to the promises of God. They were possessors and stewards of the law of God itself given to Moses. In short, the Jews believed that God looked at them with loving partiality because they were Jewish. After informing the Roman believers that Paul is writing to in this epic epistle, in chapter 1, that God's judgment was targeted toward the Gentiles. These Jews were quite happy to hear that and quite agreed with it. Of course it's targeted toward the Gentiles. Look how they act. Look how they behave. And even as he unpacks what they look like, all the way up to moral perversion, homosexuality, and even the most mundane disobedience to parents in chapter 1, the Jews were looking at this, the readers who were Jews of the book of Romans were looking at this judgment on the Gentiles in chapter 1 and saying, yeah, that's right. God's judgment will certainly come on them. The wrath of God is certainly revealed from heaven against that ungodliness and against that unrighteousness the righteousness, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look at them, and then if you want to, you can look at us. Now in chapter 2, though, the apostle turns to address God's judgment in particularly as it applies to the self-righteousness that the Jews were living in and by who possessed the law but didn't practice the law. We've said it over and over. We can find application in this. They were appreciating the truth without applying the truth. They liked the law, they just didn't obey the law. They thought it was good to go to synagogue, just not right to live after Saturday throughout the week under the precepts of God. In the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 2, Paul then outlines these principles, these principles of divine judgment. You see that God's judgment will be according to truth in verses 1 to 4. Uh, you also see that God's judgment will be in proportion to the mercy that has been ignored and denied. The more you know about God, the hotter the hell will be. 
then in the verses before us, you look at the way he outlines the judgment and says, it's going to be according to your deeds. Another way of looking at these verses is that Paul highlights three themes. God will judge and reward each person according to his or her work, his deeds. God will judge every person according to their deeds. Every person will not, no person is exempt from that. And then God will judge entirely impartially. I want us to dive into these verses, verses 5 through 11, and look really closely at this. And this is another piece of the building block that Paul is using in the entire argument of the second chapter of Romans about God's judgment. And as we do, I want us to consider together four considerations of God's impartial judgment. We'll look at and find together four considerations of God's impartial judgment. This first consideration is very clear. It's very straightforward. In fact, this whole passage is not difficult. I diagrammed it in Greek. I looked at all my lexicons. And basically, a child can read these verses, and it's very straightforward. There is nothing tricky in these verses. The first consideration of God's impartial judgment in verses 6 and 7 is this. The Godward deeds of believers. He starts with believers. The Godward, God-pointing, Godward deeds of believers. Verse 6. God, previous verse in verse 5. God will render to each person according to his deeds. Stop right there. Verse 6 is a continuation of the discussion of God's judgment that Paul initiated in verses 1 to 5. And the basic thought is reflected in the simplicity of the language. Namely, that God will judge every man, what? According to his, according, according to her deeds. Now, this assertion that God will render or recompense every person according to their, their deeds uh, is not new with Paul. This has deep Old Testament roots. Psalm 62, verse 12. The loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Hosea 12, 2. The Lord has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. But Paul's language here is probably as close to an exact quotation as it can be to Proverbs 24, verse 12. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he, God, not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to every man according to his work? Solomon understood that this was the standard of God. The way you act demonstrates the outpour of your heart, which will then be the criteria for judgment. Now, this idea of recompensing a man, every man, according to his deeds, is not merely an Old Testament concept. It's not merely Pauline. Jesus himself said, Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and the Son of Man will recompense or repay every man according to his deeds. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end, the false teachers, whose end will be according to their deeds. 2 Timothy 4, 14. Alexander the coppersmith, an enemy of Paul. Paul says, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him According to his deeds. 
Now let's step back and, and consider some pretty weighty theology in the deep end of the theological pool regarding hell. Why will a person go to hell? Now there's several answers for that. You could say because they've ultimately rejected Christ and you would be right. They've rejected the, the, the life preserver that God gave them. But that's the final part of why a person goes to hell. Why does a person ultimately end up in hell? Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. That's pretty profound. So your deeds land you in your works, your actions, how you live, lands you on a trajectory toward heaven or toward hell. Paul begins now to unpack the realities of God's impartial judgment according to the deeds of people by starting with believers. Now, if that's making you a little uncomfortable, it should, because there's going to be further explanation in a moment. Verse 7 says, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, you can supply for those comes eternal life. Verses 7 and 8 describe the two possible outcomes of God's judgment on each man that is rendered judgment according to their deeds. Verse 7 is those who go to heaven. Verse 8 is those who go to hell. And it's all based on their deeds. Look back at verse 7, the person who ends up in heaven. These are considering the Godward deeds of the believers. It's a doing good, he says. Those who by perseverance, they continue, they, they persevere in doing good. This is the character of the deeds of a person who's redeemed. They, they do good, not evil, not harm. Not perfectly, not without blame, not without reservation, not in a way that makes them a candidate for the Trinity in case there were ever a vacancy. But their life is inclined toward honoring God, toward obedience. There is a care, there's an awareness in the life of a Christian about eternity, about eschatological virtues. Look at the end of the verse. Looking for honor, immortality, glory, ultimately landing in eternal life. The believer has a sense that life after death is important. The believer has a sense that there's an eschatological reward waiting. A believer has a sense that there's a reward at the end of the funeral. This section of Scripture has made many people, though, very, very awkwardly uncomfortable with the accent Paul is making. I mean, think about it. The overarching argument of the book of Romans and certainly the overarching argument of the book of Galatians and certainly the overarching argument of the book of Ephesians and Colossians is that salvation is granted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works of righteousness that he saved us, Titus says, according to his mercy. So deeds don't save you. So what was Paul schizophrenic when he wrote this? Did a redactor come and add this to Romans after Paul wrote the book? Is Paul teaching here that someone can obtain eternal life by doing good things? It sounds like it at first blush, doesn't it? How do we reconcile this emphasis on deeds and works with the free gift of grace we sang about in the first of the service? 
Well, let's think about it. The primary point Paul is making here is that the condition of a person's heart manifests itself in deeds and in actions and in works. If you want to know what a person is like, you don't look at what they do. You look at what they do to find out what's going on in the conceptions of their heart. What they say, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. People practice outwardly what they believe inwardly. Paul's making the point that the lifestyle of a person is characterized by either godliness, here in verse 7, or selfishness, there's the contrast, in verse 8. And the critical observation to make is the motivating principle of a person's life and allegiance. Why do we do? Why do they do what they do? And it all comes down to this. Either you're motivated by pleasing God or motivated by selfishness, pleasing self, called selfish ambition in the next verse. So Paul, remember he's confronting these self-righteous Jews and all who would claim a level of self-righteousness, by the way. And he says, when you're considering God's judgment, I want you to understand that the deeds of the righteous are manifested. And they're Godward. They think toward glory and honor. They think toward eternal life. They think toward doing things now that they will want to face God with then. The Godward deeds of believers. He'll come back to the Godward deeds of believers But first, he goes on to a second consideration of God's impartial judgment, the damning deeds of unbelievers. The damning deeds of unbelievers. And this is in verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, wow, if you underline things in your Bible, star that and pray that that's never a footnote to us. Those who are selfishly ambitious, They are aggressive about promoting their own desires at the expense of anyone, at the expense of everyone. And they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Their expectation is this, wrath and indignation. Obedience to Christ is the continental divide that distinguishes a believer and an unbeliever. Can you just wrap your mind around that? Obedience to Jesus Christ is the continental divide. It's the determining factor between your destination, heaven or hell. It's the determining factor on whether you are saved or unsaved. Do you obey Christ? Jesus said, John 15, John 16, if you obey me, then you love me. Conversely, if you love me, how do you prove that? You will obey me. Footnote. Does that mean perfectly? No, just come and live at my house for a while. Just follow me around for the day. It just means that there's a sense in a believer of desiring and wanting to obey Christ, wanting to do what God wants us to do above what this text talks about, selfish ambition. The key here is selfish ambition. Selfishly ambitious, the text says. It's the opposite of the intent of the law. Have you thought about what the law really promotes and what it does? We've We've been looking at this in the book of Deuteronomy. The entire thrust of the law, the Pentateuch, the the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, everything in the law, everything in the Old Testament was intended to do two things. Jesus said it, Matthew 22. They said, what's the best law and and what's what's the highest one? I want to obey it. Give me the best one. Jesus said, forget that. I can give you the summary of the whole Old Testament. Everything that God required in the Old Testament comes down to two categories. 
You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Every command in the Old Testament falls into one of those two or both of those categories. This is the opposite of the law. Instead of pursuing God's glory and man's good, these folks, these self-righteous Jews, and anyone who promotes self-righteousness in themselves are selfishly ambitious, all about promoting self-glory, self-honor, self-satisfaction, not God's glory and the good of others. It's the exact opposite of the intent of the law, according to Jesus. Also notice that there was disobedience to the truth. You see that in verse 8? Disobedience to the truth. Now, at this point, you, say, you have to say, what truth? Well, and for that, you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and begin reading, and you see. You can go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, that the gospel of God, verse 3, is concerning his son. That's the truth. The truth that they're disobedient to is that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the only hope, and to disobey that truth, and instead, look at the next phrase, but obey unrighteousness. This was critical. This is the exact thing that the Gentiles were accused of being in Romans 1.18. They actually obey this unrighteousness that the Jews were quite happy for the Gentiles to be judged for. And yet in their heart, Selfishly ambitious, pursuing unrighteousness, shameful thoughts, shameful deeds, self-promoting things. The end for this group of people is not eternal life. Rather, it's wrath and indignation. We've studied wrath already, the furious wrath and anger of God. Indignation is interesting. Uh, it's thumos in the Greek. It means rage. Usually we think of rage as someone who's out of control. This is controlled rage. This is God's self-promoting, self-glorifying, controlled rage targeted toward those who disobey the truth. I mean, think, think about how serious God is about the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is so infinitely precious to Jesus and to God to the Spirit, to the Father. That in order to properly be judged by rejecting it is to suffer in hell forever. Not for a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or a decade, or a century, or a millennia. But his blood is so precious that the only justice due those who reject it is eternal Suffering in hell. Didn't obey the truth. Romans 1, the truth is the gospel. It's Christ himself. Instead, obeyed unrighteousness. Romans 1 says unrighteousness is the intuitive instincts to promote sin in the life. You obey your own selfish lusts. Wrath and indignation await. Let's get a little more grip on this. Look down at Romans 2, verse 25. We'll get to this in a few weeks. For indeed, circumcision is a value. Being a Jew is a value if you do what? How clear, how clear is this? If you practice the law, if you do the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision, your Jewishness, what you claim to be as, as inheritor of God's promises on the outside, that's become the uncircumcision. You've become like a Gentile if you don't obey the law. So... If the uncircumcised man 
keeps the requirements of the law, if a Gentile keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not be judged? Will he not judge you who, through, though having the letter of the law and the circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? You know what he's saying? Your Jewishness is not a hallway pass into heaven. God's favor on Abraham didn't translate to you personally. As we've said over and over, God has no grandchildren, right? Just because mom, dad, father Abraham, ultimately we stand before God alone. And Paul is saying something quite remarkable in verses 25, 26, and 27. Those who are not Jewish but care enough about the holiness of God to want to do what God says are the recipients of God's favor, mercy, grace more than those who've been born Jewish and inherited the law, stewards of the truth. Again, what value is it if you don't practice it? Verse 25 says. He goes into a longer explanation of this. Just look over at Romans 6 for a moment. And he'll come back and pick this theme up. Look at Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Look, you are slave of the one you obey. That's the major principle. Either of sin, you're a slave of sin resulting in death, or a slave of obedience resulting in righteousness. Sin and righteousness, nothing about circumcision or uncircumcision, Jewish or non-Jewish here. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became, here's our word again, obedient from the heart, outside, meshed inside to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He goes on, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. Because of the weakness of your flesh, you just don't get it. For just as you presented your members, your body, as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, and now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. But when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't bound to it. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which are now ashamed, you're now ashamed of, for the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in holiness, sanctification, and the outcome. Here it is again, eternal life. For the wages of your deeds, sinful, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. See that verse that we know so well in verse 23 makes sense at the end of the argument. Paul is saying to these Jews in Romans chapter 2, do you understand that your life and lifestyle and the way you live reveals what's in your heart? And it all comes down to obedience. You cannot reverse the train. The caboose can't come before the engine. Faith pulls obedience. Obedience doesn't produce faith. We obey because we believe. We don't obey so God will now show us favor. That's work salvation. That's not what Paul is describing here. He's saying, in your heart, if you believe, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, that's going to manifest itself in good deeds. 
If you're an unbeliever, that's going to manifest itself in your life, in your heart, in your lack of good deeds, in your unrighteousness that you obey here in verse 8. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2 for a moment. This is one of the most critical verses in my own testimony. I was going through a um, pretty severe trial about a year after I became a Christian and was having the most serious doubts of my salvation. I mean, crippling, unable to sleep, up all night, hearing thunder and think that was Jesus coming, I'm done. And a friend of mine took me to this verse, I memorized it immediately. It just, it was so definitive, but this will either be, are you ready for this? This will be your greatest comfort this morning, or this will be your worst nightmare. And you've come to the entire can I say it in a way that sounds overstated, but it's not? You've come to the entire destiny of who you are determined in these simple verses. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this, we know that we've come to know him. Stop right there. I don't know what's coming after this, whatever John says. By this, we know that we've come to him. This is assurance of salvation. Here's how you can know you're saved, John is saying. Everyone who struggles with assurance, we always end up in this verse in my office. By this we know we've come to know him. If, you see that? If, conditional clause. If we do what? Keep his commandments. Do you see the obedience theme again? Do you see exactly what Paul's talking about in, in Romans 2? And then he goes on and explains, the one who says, hey, hang on, I've come to know him, but he does not keep his commandments. Uh, John says, that man is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. In fact, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. What do your deeds tell you about your life? What do your deeds tell others about your life? What do your deeds tell God about your heart? The damning deeds of unbelievers are evident. And those are deeds of omission and commission. You understand that, right? Commission, you obviously do something God has said don't do. But there's also deeds of omission, not doing things that God has told you to do. Obedience in those two categories. Ultimately, verse 8, back to Romans 2, verse 8 says you're, you're obeying unrighteousness. You're, you're following the lusts of your flesh, the desires of your mind. Let me just say it this way. Obedience and disobedience cannot be overemphasized. You cannot, can I, can I be as, just please listen. I want to say it so clearly. Doing good deeds will not and cannot save a person. But those who know God's practice good works, good deeds that glorify God and are for the betterment of people around us. The whole law, love God, love others. That's the intent. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but this, this passage is what um, uh, biblical scholars call a chiasm. It's in the, in the letter of a, of a Greek key. And it goes down to one point and out. So he started talking about the, uh, the believer. He talks about the unbeliever in this point. He'll talk about the unbeliever again. Then he's going to come back out to the believer. So it's believer, unbeliever, unbeliever, believer. He just goes in an in a X like that. Comes to the third 
consideration of God's impartial judgment, his impartiality, the loathsome expectations of his believers. It's almost like Paul says, I'm talking about the unbelievers. Let me just tell you what they're going to expect, and then I'll come back and tell you what the believers are to expect. The loathsome expectations of unbelievers. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for not some, for every soul of a man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. These two terms are interesting, tribulation and distress. They're Paul's description of what awaits an unbeliever eschatologically in the future, after death. Truth is, some unbelievers are pursuing their unrighteousness and they're, they're not stressful at all in this life, are they? All the money they want, all the pleasure they want. He's talking about that future reality. Back in verse 7, he described the reward for those who persisted in good work as being eternal life. And the description here is just the opposite for those who've rejected Christ. And this description, listen, it's graphic. Tribulation of judgment will cause personal distress. That's the, the linkage. Every soul of a man who does evil will experience tribulation, which will lead him forever in personal distress. Constant anxiety. As we said a few weeks ago, hell is full of everything you dread and fear that never goes away. Remember, Paul is pressing the point that God's judgment is entirely impartial. It's free from prejudice. And the use of the term every here, every man highlights the fact that no one is exempt. The title of today's sermon is There Are No Exemptions from God's Impartiality. Nobody gets an exemption. Isn't it interesting, by the way, back in Romans 1.16, that verse we all love and know so well, Paul refers to the gospel's target as who? The Jew first and also the Greek, right? Now, interestingly, an amazing contrast, he says judgment is also, look at this order again, for the Jew when? First and also for the Greek. Why would the Jew be judged first? Because they have more revelation. They have more knowledge. They should know better. The thrust of the entire chapter Romans 2, is toward those Jews who regarded their Hebrew pedigree as something that made them special before God in such a way that it would exempt them from God's wrath that was obviously due to those radical, pagan, worthless Gentiles. Point simple. God's judgment is not partial. It's impartial. It's for anyone and everyone who does not respond to his truth in the gospel and deal with the deeds that they do naturally in their flesh, obeying unrighteousness. Verse 8 tells us. Tribulation and distress awaits every soul. It's interesting it says soul and not person. Soul typically has an idea of something that's eternal, not just a person the Jew first and also of the Greek. You know, I think of people who have a passion for Jewish evangelism. I'm so thankful for those folks. Kim and I have developed a new flavor for that because we live in a neighborhood that's just surrounded by Orthodox Jews. And as quick as we are to want to say, yeah, the, 
Gospel should go to them first. So should the warning, because the judgment will be first to them as well. The loathsome expectation of an unbeliever. Now we come, number four, back in that chiastic structure to the fourth expectation, the ecstatic expectation of believers. This is good. The ecstatic expectations of believers. He says, now I want to go back and talk to you about the believers. And this is almost virtually a repetition of verse 7. But glory and honor, and then he has this peace to everyone who does good. Interestingly, the, interesting that he says peace to those who are going to heaven as opposed to stress and distress of those who are going to hell. Eternal peace versus eternal distress. And then here he says it a third time in two chapters. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is so strategic in saying this is comprehensive to the Jews and the Gentiles. But know this. The gospel should have been received first by the Jews because they had the Old Testament. Judgment will come first to the Jews because they had the Old Testament revelation. And when we get to heaven, the Jew and the Greek also will worship God forever together. It goes back to highlight God is impartial in judgment, both for heaven and for hell. It's a simple verse. There's not much you can even say about it. So what we get to expect in the future, reality of those who love Christ. I was watching the deeds that unfolded this last uh, week with the uh, situation in Boston. When that entire city was on lockdown, I'm obviously thinking about this passage all week. I just thought of that great day when we will enjoy peace. We, we can have peace with God and peace of God and peace from God on this planet, but won't it be great in that day when it is only peace? Only peace. You kids, hey, you want to go play with the cobras? Have at it. Little lamb, just a lunch for a big lion, he goes up and cuddles next to him. That's what Isaiah says. There's, there's, there's peace on the planet. There's peace in God's creation. There's peace in God's kingdom. Don't underestimate that wonderful promise that there will one day be peace our lives are largely devoid of sustained peace. Heaven will be sustained peace. And then he climaxes in verse 11. Four, he just gives the whole principle. Let me tell you, Jew, Gentile, everyone, there is no partiality with God. Period. This passage calls us to consider then the ruling and controlling purposes of our lives. Think about it. On the one side, you have a man ruled by spiritual thoughts. On the other side, a man ruled by fleshly, selfish thoughts. On the one side, you have a man who seeks for God's glory, God's honor, eternal life for self. On the other, you have a man who's seeking all this world can offer as the end and the goal of his life. On the one side, you have a man who walks in the light. The other walks in the darkness. How do you know? How can you determine that in looking at others? How can you determine that in evaluating your own life? Are you ready for this? You've got to look at your life, look at your deeds, look at your works, look at what you do, Paul says. That won't make you have a list of things you can change to go to heaven. It will show you the condition of your heart, which is already destined for heaven or for hell. Works and deeds are the export. They're the exponent of character, of the governing thought that's in our hearts, of the dominating purpose, it either shows itself in deeds that promotes God's glory and others' good or promotes our self 
in ambition than selfishness. I mean, how, it seems like every week in Romans we come to this, how, how, how are you doing? What, what's, the, what's the trajectory of your life and your heart? How, how much of an impact an earthquake does your selfishness make on God's Richter scale? What, what, how, how are you living? Here's the dangerous challenge. For most of us, we have areas that we can live in ways that people can largely just think, ah, oh, great guy, good guy, moral guy. These Jews were morally tight. I mean, they ate a certain way. They didn't drink this. They didn't go there. They didn't walk there. They were so morally upright that people would have assumed that they were God's favored people. Paul says, no, what are you obeying in your heart? Are you obeying the truth of God and the gospel? Are you following your right, unrighteous desires? What's going on in your heart? The best place to measure that is with the people that we live with, the people we're closest to, the people who see the real us. Ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your mom, ask your dad, well, what does the way I live tell you about my heart? If you're asked that, give an honest answer. My, when I get to these passages, I just get so afraid of that passage in Romans 7. just haunts me. Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, unrighteousness. How do we look at heaven? How do we consider hell? How do we think about our deeds? Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this. In the whole sphere of Bible teaching on life after death, there is only one logical phase that is the doctrine of eternal punishment. And that is the doctrine of eternal punishment. He says, if you're going to be logical when you read the Bible, heaven isn't logical. Hell is. There is no logic to the doctrine of heaven. But the doctrine of hell is perfectly sane and comprehensible. All men should go to hell and not one should go to heaven. Yet, in spite of that, there are innumerable human beings who have been the objects of the grace of God and who will spend eternity in heaven. Anyone who does not agree with the statement, that statement has never seen the biblical truth of the holiness of God and the corresponding truth of the sinfulness of sin. How's your doctrine of God's holiness? How's your doctrine of depravity? How's your doctrine of sin? This past week, the world watched as the suspects in the Boston Marathon bombing were on the run, and what I heard, uh, yes, read yesterday was interesting, that the most intensive manhunt in American history happened. You think about that? More personnel were involved in looking for these guys in a concentrated period than any time in American history. Two Chechen brothers were sought. Tamerlan and Johar 
Sarnev. It's interesting. Tamarin, Tamerlan, who's 26, was shot and killed in an exchange of gunfire with the police. And Johar would run for the next day and be apprehended while hiding in a boat. Here's my question to you, okay? Here's a little gut check here. Ready? You think this guy deserves the judgment of God? You bet he does. For far more than what he did last Monday. You bet he does. If you said yes, you would be correct. Here's another question. Do you think that guy lying in that hospital right now deserves the judgment of God more than you do? How you answer that question determines whether you understand Paul's point. Oh, you may not have done what this guy did. You may never do what this guy has done. But if you say yes for him and no for you, you are grading on a curve. Folks, we are all at the bottom end of the curve. We are all deserving, like Barnhouse said, of hell. We are all in trouble with God, as my four-year-old son said to me one time. Do you know the gospel? Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of God, verse 3, concerns his son. Do you, do you have perfection? Jesus said, okay, you want to talk about righteousness? Got to be perfect to go to heaven. Are you perfect? No. If you could be perfect from now till death, that still wouldn't do it because you got all your sin in the past. Where can you get perfection? Only one place. That's Jesus Christ. As we'll get into chapter 3 and 4 and 5, God takes his righteousness and doesn't infuse. That's a whole different category. We'll talk about when that when we get here. He imputes it. He just gives it to us as a free gift and takes our sin and puts it on Christ in punishment on the cross. That's do you ever stop being amazed by that? That's good news. That's the gospel. And because of that, not to get that, but because of that, I want to glorify God and do good things for people. Think of what he's done for us. It wasn't just the first century Jews who believed God was partial. We do instinctively all the time. You can find someone to measure yourself against that you'll feel pretty good and probably someone to measure yourself against that you'll feel pretty bad. God doesn't look at us like that. The only good he sees is when he sees the imputed, glorious, undeserved righteousness of his son in our ledger on our account instead of our own deeds. And that makes us want to do deeds in keeping with what he's done for us. Deeds, no, Paul's not teaching deeds save you, but he's saying you can determine the trajectory, you can determine the source, you can determine the eternal uh, perspective of one's heart by seeing deeds. How do you live? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, if you will. We're going to come to that place, which is my most favorite in the life of our church, and that is the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>